I don't have any slides for this one. I just got a handout for you guys. Um, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start there, and then we're going to work through a bunch of really practical stuff, hopefully helpful stuff for you um, as we talk about building out a servant leadership culture. Um, So Philippians chapter 3, it's the beginning in verse 9, excuse me, verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to pray for us as we head into this. God, would you continue to call us to die to Christ? And as we just heard, man, there's, there's so many testimonies and implications as we die to you and how you bear fruit. And God, so I pray that we would realize that there is nothing that we can do apart from you. Zero. And so God, as we, as we die, may we become more and more united with Christ in his death and in his life. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So verse 8 says, Paul saying, but I, indeed I count everything as lost. There's the death. And he's already talked about it all through this part of Philippians, right? All the things that he's given up. But he's talking about this tangible death that he's considering all these things that he had as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One of the, one of the most difficult things you're ever going to have as a pastor with people that you're equipping and empowering is encouraging them to talk about a Jesus they don't know. And I think, I just really want to encourage you with this, like, it is so easy to have a vision for our church that is minus people really having a vision for Jesus. And, and if I could ask you to die to one thing, it's to die to the vision you have for your church that is minus the vision of people knowing Jesus. And I don't just mean getting saved, I mean like really knowing Jesus. Because most of our vision for our church has very little to do with our people knowing Jesus, it has to do with us growing. And that vision, for the most part, needs to die because that's not yours anyway. And then we need, we need to count the costs, make plans, all that. We need to figure out where buildings are. Martin, I mean, praise God, you've got a building. That's amazing. And so we need tangible places to meet and to do stuff. We need to pray for that. But I promise you, me included, we spend a lot more of our time trying to figure out strategery than we try to do figuring out how we help people fall in love with Jesus. And when people fall in love with Jesus, like, you'll have time for strategery. If people don't fall in love for Jesus, you're just going to be putting out fires the rest of your life. Um, and you won't have any other people in your church being priests and ministers to help you put those fires out and to be shepherds with you. And I just want to encourage you, man, like, pray for a vision for Jesus for your church. Like, let that, like, saturate your church. Because most of the visions, and I'll include myself in this as pastors that we have for people, are just weighty burdens. We're weighting them down with burdens that I, that I think is less than the burden of let's know Jesus, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there are times we've got to call people to other things, but is the predominant vision, let's know Jesus. Let's know the presence of Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. Or is it something else? Paul says, man, I count it all lost for this one thing, knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Then he talks about the gospel. Right, So to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is the biggest battle of every believer in your church. They, they trust Christ for salvation. They start to live their life in a way that says, no, what I do is actually what gives me favor and blessing and hope and peace with God. Right, And so we start living in this Christian karma, like if I do, I get. Even though we believe Jesus did and got for us, we, we live that way. And we constantly got to remind people what the gospel is. You don't do and get. Jesus did. And so you get. And thank God we don't get what we deserve, right? But Paul's saying, like, I I need to be reminded. I have a righteousness that comes not from my own or from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says it again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he comes back to the death and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I maintain resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's the consuming vision for Christ, right? And so as we talk about some really practical things about how we build out this servant leadership culture, I just want to give you two thoughts up front. One is this, is that if, if the consuming vision of the people that you're trying to raise up isn't to know Christ, what are we doing? And at some point, that's, that's got to be what it's about. You're not just trying to find more workers for your children's ministry. And that becomes our goal sometimes. It's like, gosh, we've got to fill slots. It would be okay. It's, it's a pain for me as a pastor when preaching to like screaming babies, but it'd be okay if no children got to get taken in the back one Sunday. You're not going to die. What will cause death is for your people not to know Jesus. And to really trust him in the middle of craziness in their relationships and when they lose jobs and when they're trying to figure out what to do with a 19-year-old who's running after the world and not Jesus, that's when it matters. And so, yes, we need more children's workers, but not at the cost of those children's workers not knowing Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing I want to tell you is this, that there is, there is an absolute necessity for you and I to, to let the gospel root and found everything that we're going to do, just like Paul talked about here. The, the biggest miss that happens when we're starting to raise up leaders is that we, we silo them, we teach them really uh, effectively how to run a ministry, whether it's children's ministry, youth ministry, men's ministry. We teach them how to run ministries, and we don't really teach them the gospel. We don't really disciple them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit so that day to day to day they can function within the context of living in Christ. They just get really good at running things. And that becomes our goal for, for developing leaders is I need you to take care of stuff and get stuff done as opposed to actually growing in the things of Christ, becoming a disciple and a disciple maker. So from those two things, I'm going to roll out some things here for you that hopefully are going to help some sustainability and scalability. And this is all realize this at some point i'm speaking from the standpoint of one guy like starting and leading a lot of this because i know that's what where a lot of you are you're not working with multiple teams at some point the goal is not for you to be one guy like if the goal the rest of your life is just to be the pastor of a church of 40 people where nobody else leads but you get out and i'm not saying your goal needs to be to grow your church to 4,000. you may be in a town of 400 if you grow a church to 4,000, man you're going to be on tv all right but that's not the goal but I will also say this, if, you're, if your church is 40 for the rest of your life, that's fine. Man, I hope four or five of those people in there are leading with you. Like really leading with you, making disciples. And I hope five or six or others are learning under those other five how to disciple so that there's multiplication going on. And you're not just a priest, like taking everybody's offering to the holy place, right? That's not what God's called us to be. We're shepherds. We're shepherds called to raise up a priesthood. So let's look at this. First thing, it's a long, hard, beautiful work to develop people and grow them as servant leaders. Man, I just, I just want to give you that image again, man. Think being a high school coach versus a talent agent. And the problem with, with my uh, 
issue in, in raising up servant leaders my whole life and raising up leaders, period, that have influences, I want it to happen quick. And it just doesn't. But I just show of hands, how many of you have actually had somebody, and, and hold them up for a second, I'll just do this business, but how many of you have actually had somebody invest in your life over the course of months and years, what you would call disciple you? Right? Raise your hands up. Look around the room, because there's some that haven't. And, and this is what I want you to see. Like, we have pastors in this room that have never been discipled. Um, and that's, that's not bad on you. That's, like, bad on us, right? And, and so realize, if we've got disciples, pastors in the room that have never been discipled, there's a lot of people in your church that have never had anybody invest in them. And as a pastor, like, what I want is to figure out a program that will make me just have, like, a whole bunch of people that are ready to go. And this is long, hard process work of discipling people one-on-one, one-on-three, one-on-five for the long-term gain of what's going on. And it's a bloody mess, and it's hard, but it's beautiful work. Jesus, three years with the same 12 guys, a group of ladies and some other people that are around them, and when it all ended, everybody abandoned him. So how did it work, right? After the resurrection, some came back. He lost one to death. How many of you ever had one of your leaders commit suicide? I mean, Jesus saw it all, right? And so don't kid yourself that like raising up disciples and leaders is not going to be a bloody work. Don't kid yourself that Jesus didn't have to come back the first 40 days and have some serious counseling sessions with those dudes after Judas hung himself. We just pass over that verse like, yeah, Judas hung himself. I mean, can you imagine Peter, James, and John coming into the upper room after they heard about that? And Jesus shows up and them not talking about it? No way. They were like, Jesus, what happened to Judas? And you know they had a conversation about that. You know there were some tears shed over that because as much as they were probably mad at Jesus when he started telling them, well, he was stealing from you, they still loved the guy. Walked with him for three and a half years. Betrayal they felt, the hurt they felt. Listen, you will have all those things happen to you if you're in this for the long haul. Trying to raise people up, they're going to raise people up, they're going to raise people up. So here's the first thing. This is the foundational thing, building a gospel community. It is so vital that your community of your church, the community of, your, of, of how you live and the people you live with is saturated and built up in the things of the gospel. And, and let me tell you why. Let's just walk through some of these questions here. Just asking you, but also think about this in context of the people that you're running with. Do you believe the gospel is the power not just to save, but to sanctify? Like, is it the thing that actually redeems you to Christ, but also changes you? Is it the power of the resurrected tomb and the life of Christ that actually transforms me into being a dad that can actually love my kids with pursuit? Or is it something else? And yes, I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, but is the Holy Spirit changing me through the work of the gospel, empowering me? I even get the Holy Spirit through the gospel, right? And so sometimes we've got to not just be reminded of these truths, but I have to like anchor myself deep enough so that these next questions get worked out. Does the gospel and its implications inform and shape the building of the community in your body? Let's get real specific. The third question, are you and others free to struggle, confess, and repent because you have freedom in Christ for forgiveness and change? If you don't live in a community where you can confess and repent as a pastor, you will never grow a servant leadership culture. You just won't. I've seen it year after year after year, and pastors are like, well, I can't be honest with this group because they'll kick me out, they'll fire me, then get fired. Go somewhere else where you can, or build it. And don't feel like a failure if you can't, because there's some just hard ground, man. There's some hard ground where people have just decided to throw down concrete, and, and 
whatever, call it whatever you want, the work of the enemy, the, the, the hardened hearts that won't allow the gospel to penetrate past salvation in certain people's lives, but you're, you're going to die somewhere. Why die in a place that after 15, 20 years has produced zero fruit? I'm not telling you to leave because it's easy. I'm just saying this. At some point, if you're going to get fired for something, like get fired for asking people to look like Jesus. Not for trying to raise a million dollars to build a building, you know, that you may not need or you may need. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to get, not get fired. A good one, you want people to look like Jesus. You want people to actually have a place to repent and confess and be changed. And if you can't live in that place like that, man, nobody else will be able to either. And the gospel is what allows me to repent. Like, I know that I can come to Christ because he already accepts me. He wants to change my sin, but I don't run to my dad to get forgiveness. I run to my dad because he's like this, saying, you're forgiven. Past tense. Do the people in your body that you're working with know that so they can deal with failures and struggles and process the things that they're, they're rust, wrestling through? Fourth thing, do others feel empowered by grace through the Spirit to risk and to grow and be changed? left the D off, changed, or are they moved by fear, causing them to avoid risk and hide their weaknesses and sin? I mean, you're never going to build a very powering servant leadership culture. People are constantly hiding their weaknesses and hiding their sins. And the gospel is what allows me to put my weaknesses out there because I realize, like, you know what? Here's, let me tell you about some weaknesses. I'm an introvert, which is not a weakness. It's just the reality of personality. And all that means is this. I, I get more energy from being alone than I do being in a crowd. I love people, love talking to people. I've learned how to talk to people. Those of you that use your introvertness as an excuse not to talk with people, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Okay, introvert has nothing to do with talking to people. It has everything to do with after I get through with a group of 60 or 40 like this, I gotta go take a break. Whereas Sam wants to go hang out with another 60 people. He's like, where's the party? Let's go, right? Like the next, next party, let's head on to it. And those of you that just personality differences. Here's a weakness, though, for me as an introvert, as a pastor. Like, I have to come into every gathering, like, telling the Lord, Lord, I really want to be in the middle of all these people. But this is going to be harder for me. And so, God, through your Spirit, like, let me not only be here, but let me be present. And that's a weakness that I've had to deal with my whole life as a pastor. That's not a weakness if I'm an accountant. It's a strength, Right? get to sit in a cubicle and just look at numbers all day and nobody bothers me. And that's a strength if you're an accountant. Or maybe if I'm an executive pastor, gets to look at numbers all day, whatever. I don't know. But for me as a lead pastor in the middle of people's lives, it's always been a weakness that I've had to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit with trusting that I didn't have to be like Sam to have an influence as a pastor. That I didn't have to be like Mark Sigma as the guy I work with. He's an electric chihuahua. He walks into the room and the whole room lights up. That's not my personality. And that just, we're just different. And I had to trust through the power of Christ and this Holy Spirit that different giftings and different personalities are going to be worked out some ways. And some of the gifts some of you have are weaknesses, honestly. Some of you are super creative and you can't have a conversation with anybody without painting a picture for them. They're like, please just bring it down here. Bring the cookies down here. And others of you are so practical that when you need to cast a vision for people, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's It's okay. But in the gospel, we get to bring all those weaknesses into a room and we get to build a team, even if it's just three people. We get to build a team and trust that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be Jesus. I'm not the perfect man who has every gift and every, everything, right? I'm just a person, part of, the, part of the puzzle here. Last question on there, does the gospel and the spirit impact our influence? 
in every area of life, home, community, and church? Is it every piece of what's going on? Here's some just application things as you build out this gospel community. Man, at some point in time, survey your leaders, like the people that you're running with, even the, 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 the members that are serving in place, and survey the people in your body and just give them a gospel-like quiz. Here's some questions here. Make your own up. And just see where people land on this. And it's good because sometimes you think you're the greatest gospel preacher ever. And then you sit down and start having conversations with people. And you realize like, wow. It's you being a Spanish teacher with a bunch of high school kids, right? And you think you're the greatest Spanish teacher ever. And then it's time to have the conversation. And you realize your kids are still talking like three-year-olds. And unfortunately, that's where most of our church is. They have a three- or four-year-old gospel fluency. And what that means is when they get fired from a job... Instead of being able to process this through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of the gospel, which says my identity is not in what I do, a man then goes into a closet and mourns his loss of identity because he just lost his identity in his job. And when the gospel isn't strong, then he's lost his identity. When the gospel's strong, he grieves, but he hasn't lost his identity. Does that make sense? That's why gospel fluency matters. And so every conversation you're having with people is is helping them process what it looks like to live in the things of Christ, even, even the silliest of conversations. You're helping people walk and grow in this. Both those two really good applications for you as you build out gospel community across your whole church. Here's the second building block, just intentional discipleship relationships. And we're going to get more specific as we go along. But one of the things I just really want to encourage you is you must, you've got to see most of your relationships as discipleship relationships. And when I say most, there's going to be a few that aren't. Um, I would even say... Jesus, when he first started walking with the disciples, like, when did those guys get saved? What do you think? Was it like when he first met them? Could they get saved before Jesus died? Maybe. I don't know. I don't even know how that works. But I know this. When he first called Peter to him, he wasn't saved. When he first looked at James and said, hey. When he first looked at Andrew and said, come. These were lost guys following Jesus. So listen, your, your discipleship of your six-year-old who's not a believer is discipleship. Don't think discipleship starts at salvation. Discipleship starts long before people are saved. And so even the lost people you're engaging in the community are discipleship relationships. You're showing them what Jesus looks like in every conversation, how you love them, how you pursue them, how you, how you deal with your kid. And when your kid starts pulling the Damien thing and falling around on the you know, in the middle of the dollar store spinning around because you won't get him the candy and you're thinking, my son is a demon. And you have a moment as a dad, right, to kindly discipline him or let him do what he wants or to like pick him up and treat him like a dog. And I promise you, everybody's watching, you're discipling them at that moment. And, and I've lost it on my kids before, you know. I mean, I've treated them like a dog. and I had to apologize and repent at 24 years old. They don't even remember Hey, there's one time we were in the grocery store, and, and my Will looked at me, the 24-year-old the other day, went, really, you did that? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, man, I wish I could have seen that as an adult. And I said, no, you really didn't want to see that, promise. You're discipling all the time. Look at most of your relationships as discipleship relationships. I just want to ask you this, too, as a pastor, like, who's pouring into you? And I, I want to say this as we get down into some of these other things, but you've got a lot of men in here that would love to pour into you. You just got to ask. And a lot of those relationships may look more like this than like this, and that's okay. The older you get, I'm 58, the older I get, it, I have to work really hard to have anybody in my life that's like this. And I don't mean they're like a Yoda for me. I just mean they really can look me in the face and go, hey, shut up and listen to me for a moment. 
or hey, come here. And like people that I, that I, I will just be still in front of and listen to because I really feel like maturity-wise, like they're so far ahead of me. Fewer and fewer people of like that in my life. That, that I, and I have to go find them. I have to go ask them. I have to like look at them and say, hey, will you, will you eat breakfast with me once a month and just talk about Jesus with me and talk about my family with me? And I have to like invite them into that place in my life. And so pastors, I just want to encourage you, man, there's a ton of pastors in this room that you don't have to date them, right? That's super awkward. Like, hey, would you be my friend as a pastor? I mean, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but you need to look at people and go, man, I, I need some believers who are running after Jesus that'll like pour into me and I'll, I'll pour into you and we'll run together. We'll be iron sharpening iron. We need that. Who are you doing that with? Most of your relationships need to be discipleship relationships, most of them. Here's, here, here's how that gets played out. You've got to intentionally love relationally, even when you're in the pulpit. Here's a practical application for you, Pastor. Figure out how to shepherd from here and not just preach. And it, Hear me again, please. Like preaching, you can preach without being a shepherd. And that's not always evil, but I, I will tell you right now, I've, I prayed really hard walking into this. I wanted to shepherd pastors today. I just didn't want to give them information or like mic drops, right? And so I pray today you're feeling shepherded by Sam and by Ben and by other men that have been up here and myself, but listen, it is harder to shepherd people you don't know. And so walking into a room like this, it's real easy just to preach, and get in my Subaru and drive home, like, oh, that was cool. But shepherding requires more prayer, more asking the Spirit, more listening God to God, more, more having conversations with people before the day begins. Where are you from? What's going on? What's, and, and listen, every week, even if you only have 35 people in your congregation, sometimes just walking in the middle of your people before you preach will change your sermon. Because you'll talk to one guy who just figured out that his 36-year-old daughter had a miscarriage. This happened to me two Wednesdays ago. We're the weird church that has church on Wednesday night. And I was walking through talking to some people in the middle of our congregation. This lady told me that her daughter had a miscarriage that night and was coming to church. And don't tell me I wasn't thinking about that when I was preaching. Don't tell me my, there wasn't compassion stirred in my heart for somebody out there who had lost a life that was living in them, that I can't even begin to imagine. My, my, my wife had two miscarriages, but I didn't. I did as a dad, but I didn't as a woman. I don't know what that's like. But it changed just the way I was preaching that day. And can I just encourage you, like the way, like preaching is part of your discipleship process. It just is. Any time you get to teach is part of discipleship. Can't be your own whole thing. Obviously, it's got to be up close at some point. But this is discipleship. It gets to be more discipleship as you shepherd while you preach and not just preach. So figure out how to shepherd while you preach. And let me just give you three easy questions. Like, look at your sermon at some point after you finish it, and look at it and go, where do I get to like stop for a minute and really shepherd my people? And, and that means a lot of things. Sometimes it means being super bold, man. You pull out the shepherd's crook, you know, not just the, the, the nice little thing they pulled him back with, but the thing that actually broke the leg with. Sometimes you need to look at your congregation and go, man, this is sin. And we collectively can't continue to walk in this. And that's being a shepherd. Sometimes being a shepherd is, man, I know some of you are hurting right now. And the mere fact of me bringing this up takes you to this and grieving. Man, let's grieve together by going to the Lord, not in our own way. Like, how will you shepherd the body in the middle of your sermon? Sometimes you just need to get intentional and look at your sermon after you're finished preparing it and figure out there need to be moments where you just stop and actually look at people and shepherd them. Maybe it 
as a prayer that you're put in the middle of your liturgy, in the middle of what's going on during the day and how you shepherd people, but shepherd them. Super applicable thing there. Second thing there is just you've got to invite a few people into intentional discipleship process. We're going to talk more about that as we get into the next thing, but I'm, this, this isn't a law, so I don't want to make you feel like you're going to hell if you never do this, but this is as close to a law as I want to say. If you're not discipling people as a pastor, you, I think it's super hard to be a pastor. But I can tell you this, it is real easy as a pastor to spend your whole life running programs and preaching sermons and disciple, like up close, disciple nobody. And you'll disciple somewhat from up here. People's lives will be changed because the Word of God is powerful. Even if we're not great preachers, lives get changed. That's what God does. But God's called us to be disciple makers. Like Matthew 28 is really clear. Go make disciples. And it wasn't just to some. That's a command for all. You know, what that looks like as a pastor, you've got to be pretty strategic and pretty clear about this. We're going to walk through some things here. But if your goal is just to run programs and preach, man, be a professor. That's what professors do. They run programs, they teach. And some of you are super gifted at teaching, you shepherding. I had a guy pastor tell me this once, man, I'm not really highly gifted as a shepherd. I'm like, why are you pastoring? And even if you're not gifted, I'm not gifted in mercy. When I take spiritual gift tests, mercy is like way down here for me. But you know what? God still says, John, have mercy. He doesn't say, well, I don't have to do that. I've got Dan on my team. Dan's full of mercy. He's going to be our pastor of mercy. I get to be the pastor of being a turd, right? I get to be the prophet who drops the bombs and Dan's going to come pick your tears up. And so I have friends like that. They're like, well, I'm not called to be a shepherd, man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I'm like, the word pastor means shepherd. Be a shepherd, guys. And part of that means discipling people. So let's talk about how we do that. So here's some scalable things, like in the, in the Scripture. And so hopefully these are all scriptural things, right? There's actually places, there, there's no place in the Bible where it says you need to have a membership covenant, but it's all over the Scripture in the New Testament where they were determining who was under their care. So they were taking care of orphans and widows. And they were saying, hey, take care of these widows and the orphans in this way within the body. They didn't take care of every orphan and every widow in, the, in all of Jerusalem. I'm sure they tried, but they didn't. The fight was over the Jews and the Hebrew and the, the Gentile uh, widows. Remember this in Acts chapter 6? And it wasn't everyone in Jerusalem. It was those that were believers. And so there's somehow we've got to figure out who's a part of our body. However you do that in your church, in your denomination, that's fine. But we have members, and those members have to be believers, followers of Christ, blood-bought. You don't need lost people being members. You need lost people in your church. I hope you're always preaching to some people that are lost, but when you're calling people to membership, they should be blood-bought believers, right? And you're asking them to invest. You're telling them they're a royal priesthood. First Peter tells them they've been set apart for a royal service to do ministry and to care and to serve. And so that, that's the beginning of our leadership group is the members of the body. And that's a real always scalable thing. You always know who your members are. You've got to figure out who your members are and figure out who's really committed. And there's all different kinds of ways to do that. Talk to one another, figure out how you're doing that different context. Sam does a little bit different than Ben. But we all, all of us that I run around with, we all have some kind of way to we figure out who is committed to the body, the local body. And, and we have some like bars for them. Do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Trusting, have you denied and died? Right? Denied all other saviors and 
picking up your cross and following after Jesus, trusting He's my only way to be right with God. And so, yes, you want to be a part of this local body? Yes. And everybody has different other things they put in there, but keep it simple is what I'm encouraging with. And then look at them and and actually have some time to look at them and say, hey, if you're going to be a part of this body, here's some things that we're we're all doing together. And don't give them 72 things. It's really difficult when you give people like a membership covenant that has like 70 things on it. I don't even know what I would, I mean, I, I think you could come up more for a marriage, but I don't need 72 things as a husband. I need to figure out like three. Like, how do I die to Jesus, live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and lay down my life for my wife? And then there's a list of about three or four other things I really want to do for her. But you know what? They change about every three years. I've been married to nine different ladies in 32 years, and it's all the same woman. If you're at a church for more than 10 years, you're going to be, you're going to be, married to a different church over those 10 years. People change. Culture changes. Mask, no mask. Things change, right? Shepherd your body. Know who the members are because that's where you're starting. That's where you're starting your leadership culture from. That's where you get to plant the gospel community. That's where you get to set expectations. That's where you get to call people. And we were talking about this earlier, calling out the called. Preston and I were talking about this. That's where we get to call out the called. We look at our members and say, man, you've committed to this. Now, how are we going to serve together? How are we going to grow together? That's where that begins, the membership. Here's some just practical things about, about this. At some point, you're getting people into smaller groups to disciple them, and that may be Sunday school in your setting. It may be small groups, but here's my encouragement to you. If, if your Sunday school or your small groups aren't set up to do discipleship, then get rid of them and start them over. And I know you can't do that in some of the places you are. You get burned or they burn you down or they come after you with pitchforks and horns. Just retool them to make them about discipleship. Everybody says they want that. And then after a while, it just becomes a program where we're teaching and it becomes more about information than it does about transformation. And so if you're asking me, like, what's the defining litmus thing between the difference between discipleship and not? Is, is that Sunday school group or is that small group about transformation? Or is it about information? Because if it's about transformation, listen, mission will happen. When you get transformed, mission happens. When you get transformed, community starts being built in the gospel. When you get transformed, lives start getting changed. People start caring for one another and start doing those things we want them to do. But when it's just about information, I mean, people walk out of there not changed. They walk out of there not on mission. They walk out of there grumbling about everything. And so your small groups, your core thing that you're going to spend a lot of your time investing in have to be places of transformation. And so what are some of those things look like? And here's just some encouragement, I think application-wise things. First is you've got to constantly do two things with these leaders. You've got to disciple them and care for them. The biggest thing that I've, the biggest mistake I've seen myself make and other pastors make over the course of a lot of years is they turn over this piece of investing in the most important leaders in your church to somebody else way too quickly or at all. And so for some of you, you're like, well, I don't have anybody to turn this over to. Great. It's, it's you. But here's what I want to say to you. You've got to constantly disciple these leaders that are leading your groups. And some of you may only have like two Sunday school classes or three small groups, whatever it is. You've got to invest in the people that are leading that and disciple them. And you're saying, well, what does that even look like? Does that mean I'm teaching them how to teach the small group? No, I'm, I'm more about you discipling them how to grow up in Jesus and how to read their Bible and how to fall in love with Jesus and have a vision for Jesus. If you do that, they, out of the overflow, they will lead those small groups. Like there's a thousand pieces of curriculum out there about how to lead a small group or how to lead a Sunday school. You can do that in one weekend 
a retreat and give them practical things about equipping them for leading that group. What you can't give them in a weekend is how do they love Jesus in such a way that being in the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit starts becoming their life, and out of the overflow of that, they're loving and pursuing the people in the group they're in. You get to disciple those people. And if you spend time with those two or three leaders, like regularly spend time with those two or three leaders, you will see a change in your groups. Because God will be changing you, God will start changing those groups, and all of a sudden, either a leader will step out, they're like, man, I don't want this, I just wanted to, you know, teach a class. And then somebody else will raise up who's like, man, I, I want to see people's lives changed. And somebody else will step into that with you and say, man, I want to be a part of this. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to be a part of this. That's who I was at 18 years old. I got saved, wanted to see lives changed because mine was changed. And I hung around Jackie Gibbs because Jackie said, I'll let you see how lives are changed. Not through me, not through you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ working in us. And I got to hang out with Jackie Gibbs for like five years. Five years, this guy discipled me. And he had to tell me things all the time like, you can't sleep with your girlfriend anymore. I was like, really? Because I didn't know. If you're going to disciple men to follow Jesus, like you're going to have to look at them and have some really honest, hard conversations with them and with like husbands and wives. Like, hey, you can't, you can't do that. Because the vision for Jesus calls us to this. The beauty of Christ is this. Like, this is death. It's not just no, but hey, this is Yes. And he gave me a vision for Christ that was bigger than just saying no to stuff, but he did have to tell me no to some things that I honestly kind of knew. The Spirit of God was in me going, hey, don't do this, but I really didn't have any reason not to because I hadn't read my Bible enough to know, like, oh, can't do that anymore. So you're going to have to disciple people and walk with them. Here's some second thing you're going to have to do is care for them. Um, the biggest problem that I see in, in all of our leaders that I have in our church is that they just at some point, they just don't feel cared for. And they're in the middle of a lot of mess. They're, they're hands-on walking with people. They're caring for people. They're trying to help people's lives be changed. They're shepherding people, and they're just getting hammered. And, and when we're not caring for their souls, the leaders, when we're not caring for the leaders, when we're not encouraging the leaders, listen, their turnover rate is going to be quick. And you're constantly going to be looking for a new worker to step into that Sunday school class or that small group. And so we've got to figure out ways to care. And so here's, here's a couple of practical things I wrote on this under number one. Um, have a thorough onboarding process that equips for the job and explains what's to come in their growth. Like figure out a way when people are new stepping into a, leading a small group or Sunday school that, that you can spend, you know, a couple of days with them and, and just equip them. Like this is what we do in our small groups. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we're not trying to do. You can do all that in a weekend, just what they're doing. And, and then tell them, hey, the rest of what we're going to be doing the rest of the year is, is me and my wife and your wife hanging out together. And we're just going to learn how to look more like Jesus. And most couples aren't going to turn you down when you say that. Now, if you tell them, hey, I want to meet with you every week to talk about leading your small group, they're going to go, uh, I got a softball team I need to be a part of. They're going to figure out a way to get out of that. Because leading a small group is only so much you can teach me about that. Or it just gets like, oh, I got to meet with him again and talk about like how to not chase rabbits when we're talking in our small group. But Sam sits down and looks at me and says, man, I want to help you and your wife look more like Jesus in your marriage and with your kids and bleed that over to the people in your small group. Man, I'm a 28-year-old couple. I would have killed to have somebody do that with my wife and I when I was 28. I, I would have bled for Sam to said that to me. But what people did to me was say, hey, come to my weekend and I'll teach you how to run a small group. And then they didn't talk to me again for six months. And they trained me how to lead a group. They didn't teach me how to follow Jesus. 
That's what's happening in a lot of churches. We have a lot of people trained how to do stuff, how to get stuff done, and they're not really being discipled on how to grow up in Christ and help other people grow up in Christ. Here's some just practical things for you. We, one of the things I learned how to do, even when I was a church planner, we were a small church of like 60, 70 people, is that once a year we did a retreat, and that retreat at the beginning was $0. We'd come up to the church on a Friday night and spend a couple of hours um, and eat a meal together with just the leaders, and we had like four-leader couples, so there was 10 of us, my wife and the four-leader couple, so there was 10 of us. And we'd come up to the church, and we'd eat a meal together, and that whole weekend, some of it was just encouragement, praying together. Uh, we had a couple of different people lead stuff, and it was, it was not how to lead small groups. It was just how do we run after Jesus, and we always had a vision that we were after that year, like, and I'm not talking about anything crazy, but it was just like, hey, this is what God's calling us to in loving Christ this year, so what does it look like to die? And maybe that was the, the, what we're going to talk about the whole year. But that became the hope for that weekend is that we were really going to spend time together praying into, encouraging one another, loving on one another, having fun together. We would, we would maybe even go to the Cardinal game. I'd stick, that's the one thing I paid for is I'd buy everybody Cardinal tickets, and on Saturday we would go to the Cardinal game together. And that got half the guys there because um, they knew, hey, I get to go to a Cardinal game with John. But we would hang out, and that whole weekend was just about encouraging them and pouring into them and loving them, telling them, I know what you're doing is hard and we're in this together. And, and it fueled them almost for an entire year because then out of that weekend, we would tell them, hey, when we meet, we're going to talk more about this and how we run after Jesus. And, and we talked this much about program, we talked this much about how we ran after Jesus. Um, and it didn't cost us anything. Later on, we started going to hotels and different stuff because we got some, some budget. But at the beginning, the first three or four or five years, man, it was zero cost. The other couple of things I wrote under there is like meet three or four times a year with those couples to pray. And you can start inviting other leader couples into that. So if you have a, someone who's leading a prayer ministry or leading your children's ministry, it doesn't have to just be your small groups or Sunday school groups. We brought all the leaders together three or four times a year. We encourage, we pray together, we talk about the same things about Jesus. And, and we would disciple and we would encourage, we'd break up into groups. It was a lot like this except we didn't have this many people. It was a little bit of teaching, a lot of encouragement, and then we'd sit around and pray for one another. And, we, and everybody gets to look around and go, man, we're all on the same team. And it wasn't about programming them to get something done. They would have their own meetings for that kind of stuff, as few as possible. Less is more when you're developing leaders. Do something a little and make it super impactful instead of giving them a lot of stuff that's not as impactful. People are busy. And, and I will just tell you, the more you're discipling them, the more they'll want to be there. And so three times a year we met, and then three times a year I just meet with couples individually. Like my wife and I would take them out to dinner and there was no formal thing we did. We just took them out to dinner and we just loved on them. And we asked them about their marriage and we said, this is how we'd love for you guys. This is the best thing my wife ever came up with. I wish I would have come up with this. She'd look at them and say, man, we want to pray for you guys, but we want to tell you how you can pray for us first. And I remember when she did that the first time, I was like, what is she going to say? <laughs> I thought I was in trouble. Like my wife needs prayer and she didn't know how to not tell people, right? And no, she was just inviting them into our lives. Like we're human. Our, our armpits stink just like yours. We wake up in the morning without makeup on, right? Like, I, we don't, like some of us as pastors, I know some of you guys always preach in t-shirts and holy jeans and it looks cool, but other people, like they, you, you dress when you're not preaching, like you look like you're not preaching, then Sunday preaching time comes up and you just look different, right? And people see you like out in the community, they're like, is that guy ever, is his hair ever messed up? Look, and then they equate all of this with like our hearts too. Like our hearts just don't need Jesus. 
I don't need the gospel like you do. My wife leaned across that table and said, man, we need Jesus just like you do. This is how you can pray for us. Now, how can we pray for you? Those dinners with those couples was a discipleship. We were teaching them how to be vulnerable with other people, how to pray with them, how to ask for the gospel, how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know it. That's what we were doing. After a year, we were able to tell them, hey, what we've been doing with you for a year, do that with the couples in your group. So we didn't bring them to a weekend and train them all weekend on how to do this. We just did it for a year. I wish I could tell you it was super strategic. A lot of it was by accident, Holy Spirit, God, but, but that was strategic. The last thing on there is one of the things I've learned over the last three or four or five years is you can work through short books or passages to increase hunger and vision. You can do that virtually. Like I have a group me, you even know what that is, but I have a group me about 15 guys that I don't even meet with, but we were walking through a book together because all these young guys want to be pastors. And this is kind of like a litmus test for me for these guys. Like, will you read through this book with me? Will you keep up? Will you answer questions? Will you pray for one another? Will you pursue? And I give them assignments. Will you pursue a couple of things? And we're working through a book every week. And so I started doing this with some of our leaders, our small group leaders. I said, hey, we're going to do whatever, uh, Pursuit of God or the Holiness of God by Tozer. I think that's what it is. Anybody want to do this? Didn't make everybody do it, but I just said, hey, if you want to do this, I'll buy the books for you. And I bought the books and, and about 15 of the guys wanted them. Well, the other eight guys that didn't want them found out what we were doing. They're like, hey, I want the book. You know, they were like, I want to get in on that. And, and what started happening is this community like, uh, of guys just started talking about what God was doing as they were reading these books. And it wasn't me meeting with them. It wasn't Mark meeting with them. Mark just gave them books, and I gave them books. And then they started talking to each other. So there's other ways you can, my point is this, there's other ways you can do discipleship that some of it is even a little bit virtual because people are so busy that it'll increase hunger so that when you do get together with them, there's, there's more that God's already stirring. So think outside the box. Don't just think, I've got to get them in a room, and it's got to be two hours, and I've got to have phenomenal content, and I've got to be like John Piper, right? Like that may not be what you need to be in those two hours. Figure out how to love them super well and disciple them. Open the Bible. Teach them how to read the Bible. Teach them how to learn the things of the gospel. That's membership stuff. I'll say this last thing before we turn the page over, that number three at the very bottom. You can lead both of those things, but focusing on one aspect is good and probably a needed goal for sustainability. Some of you want to learn how to sustain a growing leadership culture. You can't lead everything. And so at some point, as you start to develop those leaders in your small groups, one of those guys, one of those couples may be really good at caring, right? And let them start being the one who initiates how, how caring is going to get done. Gift cards are the best thing in the world. Like you get people $25 gift cards and write them a little note and get them to them every once in a while. People are like, gosh, they thought of me. Um, getting, setting, and telling them this is for a date. Like go out on a date and writing a card in there and, and you know, just doing small things, sending notes, sending cards. I'm not a, by nature, gifted encourager, but I've learned from some really good people around me that are. The more encouragement you give people that's really focused, really praying for them, texting them at the right time, telling them I'm praying for you because I know you're heading to the hospital for this test means a world to those leaders. You know, figure out how to care and bring somebody else alongside you that's gifted at that and don't feel like you have to do it all at some point is my point. That's part of the sustainability. Start putting people in place, praying for that specifically. Turn the page over, discipleship pods. At some point, you're going to have to raise up groups of people that are discipling one another on a smaller level, one-on-one, one-on-three. So many different ways to do this. Let me, let me say this, hear this, say this as forcefully and as loud as I can. The issue is not curriculum. There's five million different books out there about how to spend time with the Lord. The issue is, will you actually do it up close, face-to-face with somebody? 
And I would encourage you not to use books with a lot of people you're discipling you, like, and I'm talking about written, pre-written books by people, but to just get them in the Bible. And you're like, I don't know how to get people in the Bible. Well, learn, pastor. Learn. Get somebody to help you learn how to do that. I didn't know how to do it. I had to have somebody show me how to do it. It's not intuitive. For some of you, it's a lot easier than it is for others. You want to get in the Bible and you just want to preach. That's, that's not discipleship. It's just preaching at somebody. It's teaching them how to read the Bible through the lens of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and then applying it to their life, killing idols, putting to, get, putting to death the flesh, and growing our hunger for Christ. Like, you start teaching people how to do that and take them through simple things, right? Like, if you've got a bunch of leaders, take them through something simple like Ephesians. You get to talk about who Christ is and then how to practically carry it out. I mean, get, get some simple books you can walk through. Teach them how to read the Word. Teach them how to apply the Word. Pray with them. Teach them how to pray. It's what Jesus did. The word, prayer, let's go live it. So my statement to you is this, like at some point, if you want to get smaller discipleship things happening, at some point you're going to have to like start building this vision out with people individually, like saying, hey, I would love to see this. Imagine our church, and this is casting a vision, right? Imagine our church someday having ladies discipling ladies, men discipling men, couples discipling couples, people discipling kids. I mean, imagine what that looked like. And people are like, yeah, that sounds great. How, how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to start with you and maybe four or five other people meeting with me for about six months. Man, Pastor, me and can't, we can't do this in two weeks. Mm-mm. And maybe six months, nine months, we're going to hang out together. And we're going to grow in the Word together. And we're going to figure out what this looks like. And then, then we're going to turn you loose into the small groups you're already in, the Sunday school classes you're already in, whatever those bigger groups are, right? And I would be strategic. If you have four small groups or four Sunday school classes, get a person out of each one or get a couple out of each one. Pray about it. Figure out who's hungering already for the Lord, who's growing, and then go call those people and ask them to come walk with you and your wife or just you for six months or nine months or a year. Imagine what their lives will look like a year later. You may say, what does that look like? It sounds like a lot of time. Yes. You don't have to meet every week. You can meet every other week. You can meet with the couples every other week, and you can meet with the guys every that in-between week, and your wife can meet with the girls in-between. Your wife may not want to do this. Just do it as a couple, though. Don't put it on your wife if she's not gifted in that way, but if you can do it in couples, it's great because it's going to be really super difficult to impossible for you to disciple ladies, right? And so the way you can do that is in couples. And even if your wife's not gifted, you can get her to be there and get the couples there. And so nine months to a year, I say six months, you can get a lot done. As a, as a pastor, one of the things I encourage the guys that were leaders in my church to do is when we were small, we had two other pastors like the two guys were lay guys. They had jobs. They weren't paid by the church. I was the only one that was. I told them, like, every year for six months, I'm going to be discipling a group of people for six months. Not all year, but for six months. And so I kind of scheduled my calendar so those six months I wasn't discipling, some other things were going on. Six months I was. I took some things off my calendar. Don't kill yourself by doing 50 things at one time. That's not sustainable. Okay, so I had six months where I wasn't discipling a group of people, six months where I was. But I asked the lay guys, hey, in the course of three years, would you look and see? Like, if, if you're an elder pastor in our church, we're going to talk about what that is in a minute, but if you are and you don't have time to disciple people, you don't need to be an elder. And I told my guys that, like, if you don't have time to disciple people, the only thing you have time to do is to come into a room and make decisions, I don't want you to be an elder. This is not an elder board we're pastors that are actually shepherding people. And so if you don't have time every once in a while, the disciples and people, like, step out for a little bit until you have time. I want that first. And, man, everybody bought in, and they couldn't all do it as much as I did, and I didn't expect them to because they were lay guys that were, had other jobs, right? 
But man, they discipled guys. And we had two or three pastors pouring into groups of couples and men. And we all did it a little bit differently. We didn't have any curriculum we wrote out. I told them like, hey, here's a vision for what I want it to look like. But, but we got people into the Word, and then those people went back into their groups, and we gave them a little more structure about how to then start discipling people within those groups. And people were starving for that. And all it took was for the leader to stand up and say, hey, we're, we're praying about starting some discipleship groups within our group. My wife and I would love to, and all that means we're going to meet with you and talk about what this could look like, and, and then it went from there. I can tell you more details, but here's my point. It's not going to ever get started until you get a couple of people that you invest in for a while. And it's not going to be sustained unless you keep discipling people. Because what I noticed about those people I discipled is that they started leading other ministries or they left to plant churches or God used them. And they didn't stick around doing what I raised them up to do for very long. A year or two and they were gone. So you constantly got to be discipling new people. And that, that's a little bit frustrating, but it's awesome because they they're off doing something else. God called them to other things. Um, Deacons, elders. So I, deacons are in the Bible. Good thing to have. Figure out what they look like in your church for you. I think biblically, they're people that are leading other servants. They're servants who are leading servants. They're leading groups of servants. Sometimes in some churches, they just lead communion or, or they just go to the hospitals, and that's fine. I just Whatever you're going to call them, you have leaders in your church that are leading servants that aren't pastors, right? And so you have like a, someone who's like a deacon leading your children's ministry. And you may say, well, we don't have women deacons in our church. You call them a staff person. Functionally, they kind of are. I mean, biblically, you're asking them to lead a bunch of servants. You just don't want to call them women's because that would upset the apple cart and everybody go crazy. You don't have to. I'm not saying that. Just realize this. All over your church, you have people being leaders. They're leading other people, and you're not calling them pastors for a reason because they're not. And so whatever you call them, deacons or leaders, you've got to invest in those people. I hope the people you're investing in first are the people who lead in your small groups, your Sunday school classes. Like, those are the couples, those are the people you need to be pouring into. But you're going to have a few other leaders leading prayer, leading uh, children's ministry. What else do people lead here in your body? One or two other things. You got one other thing somebody's leading? Music, right? So that may be your three. You may have somebody leading children, music, maybe prayer. And who knows? In there, you may get some other things. It's not going to be a bunch. Don't start 15 things. If I can encourage you to do something, do less programs, do more discipleship, right? And so you don't have to find as many people to fill out programs. I mean, when you're doing programs, you've got to find a lot of people. When you're doing discipleship, you're not having to like, constantly be plugging people in because it's, it's just so much easier. Um, it's not easier. It's just less, less stress on replacing workers all the time. And you're actually raising people up to know Christ instead of just fill a hole. But you're going to have other leaders, leading children's ministry, whatever it is. Like those, those are people, what I'm telling you is those people need to be discipled as they're stepping into those roles or ours. Way too many times we ask people to lead our children's ministry that have no idea who Jesus is, but they're super good at administrating stuff. And you're not allowing that person then to help create part of your leadership culture by having her or him disciple more people. And you're like, man, I just need somebody to run my children's ministry. I get it. But while they're doing that, then figure out a way to disciple them. You're like, I can't do that alone with a girl. Get her in a group. Get her in a group of two or three other people. Like, well, when do I do that? I, I don't know. Figure it out. What, what I do with some of the guys that I meet with is when I had kids is like we met late at night. We had kids and at like 8.30, I told them, hey, put your kids down. I got kids. You got kids. Put them down. We're going to meet at 8.30 and we're going to meet from 8.30 to 10.30. Some guys, as they got older, we met at 5.30. We met at 5. I got to meet with guys at 5 o'clock in the morning all the time now. And other guys are like, man, I, don't, I can't. I mean, I don't even know if Jesus is awake at 5 o'clock. I'm like, come on. 
You want to follow Jesus, you can get your hiney out of bed once a week at 5 o'clock. Let's do it. And so I meet with a couple of people now, girls and guys, and we meet early in the morning at like 6 o'clock, and there's three girls in that room and two guys. And that's how I disciple girls. I have other ladies I'm trying to bring involved into their lives, not just me. But you can disciple women if you get them in groups, especially if you're discipling them for a very intentional purpose for them to go disciple other people and not just lead a program. The problem is with sustainability and building up a, a culture of, of servant leadership where people are really investing in people is that we train way too many people just to do a task. And they learn how to do children's ministry, lead worship, or do this, and they don't learn how to do people. They don't learn how to disciple people. And you can find 100 people that can stand up and, and sing songs or lead children's ministry or even preach. But finding people that are really invest in people and pursue people and disciple you, that's a different deal altogether. Invest in those people. Teach them how to do both. Teach them how to do both. Deacons. Last thing I want to get to is elders here, and then we're going to go to our next piece of this, questions and food and all that. Um, because I put some practical things on here I'll let you read through. I, I would just say this, like I, everybody's in different places about their polity, about how they do pastors and, and, and different things. I just, just want to encourage you. I think biblically there, there's a strong case to be made for, for more than one pastor in a church. I don't know that there's, it's hard when you start talking about like literal true co-pastors or tri-pastors or where everybody's like an equal on a pastor team. I think at some point there's always going to be a first among equals much like there is in a, in a house with my wife. Um, we don't make any decisions alone that matter, my wife and I. Never have. Maybe a few times didn't work out well. And so all decisions that go down in our house, like we each have an equal vote. And at some point, you know what we've learned to do, what most of you have done? We don't compromise. If she wants purple and I want red, we don't pick blue. You know what we do? One of us dies. And usually I'm called to do that. And so I'm like, you want purple? Let's go purple. And what if it's like a biblical thing you need to take a stand on, John? Well, that's not what we're arguing on. We're talking about colors most of the time. Type of car, should we spend money on this? And, and so sometimes, yeah, we just don't make a decision because we can't agree and nothing gets done. This is how pastors work when you have multiple pastors, plurality of pastors. Is everybody has an equal vote, biblically. Everybody has an equal vote. And you come to unity in this. And you ask the Holy Spirit to do that, whether it's three people, two people, whatever. But at some point, somebody's got to walk out of there and communicate that. And that's where the first among equals comes in. It's where Peter was as the, the apostle for the disciples. I don't think Peter led those disciples all the time by himself, but he sure spoke a lot. And so everybody kind of thought he was a leader. Who ended up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem? James, Jesus' brother. He wasn't even one of the disciples, right? He was just James, Jesus' brother. And so there's all different ways to do this. My encouragement to you is this. If you're going to raise up a leadership culture where members are being equipped to be priest on mission and deacons or leaders, whatever, start to disciple more people for you, you're going to have to have other people in pastoral roles besides you. And so whether you do that as elders or you call them associate pastors or whatever, my encouragement to you is this, raise up other pastors. And you're like, well, we don't have money to pay them. Raise up lay pastors. Every church I've ever been in, we had lay pastors and we had staff pastors. We had lay deacons and we had staff deacons. We just call our staff people deacons. If they're not pastors, some of them get paid, some of them didn't. And so it was just, we had staff deacons, lay deacons. We had staff pastors, we had lay pastors. And smaller the church is, you have a lot more lay pastors and lay deacons than you do staff anything. Sometimes it's just one, me. And so we had lay pastors and we raised up a couple of lay pastors. Long process. 
got the process laid out there to you. I just want to, just want to say a couple of things will be done. Have a process. Down the bottom application, have a process. Borrow this from others. Sam's got a process. Ben's got a process. I've got a process. People have processes. They're not all perfect. But what I will tell you about every process and raising up pastors is it takes time. And I would say this, what the scripture tells us is like, let them be tested like deacons were. So you test people before you put them in leadership roles as deacons, which means the deacon role is the great place for you to test your pastors. Or can they lead a small group well? Can they teach well in those settings? Are they shepherding people? Are they loving people? And you get to see them do that for a couple of years where you even ask them to step in any kind of pastor process that you're going to be leading. And then that process might be a year or two long. Everybody's is a little bit different how we do this. Part of our process with those guys is their wife. Their wives aren't going to be pastors. But for us, the biggest issue always in some elder's life is not usually him, it's her. Because she's not in the same place spiritually. She didn't want to do this. She is way past him spiritually and wants to be the elder, and he doesn't need to be. I mean, there's all sorts of issues that come up, and if you don't, like, walk in this thing together, you're going to find out later. Like, there will be issues together, and so we've just figured out how to make this, like, the guy's going to get most of the training, but we do a lot of this together with couples. There's a lot of interaction and relationship that goes on. Have a process. No less than a year is the thing I put in there. Make it comprehensive. Like, think through all the things you want your guys to know theologically, servant leadership, prayer, shepherding, discipleship, elder roles, preaching. Make it relational and experiential. Don't just ask them to learn stuff. Let them do stuff. Don't just ask them to read books. Let them preach. Let them teach. Let them lead in their gifts. Let them be a part of going to you to hospital, sitting in meetings that are, that are like conflict. Like, one of the best things that ever happened to me as a pastor is when I, the next, I walked in one day, we had our first two lay guys that we were raising up, pastors, and I walked in one morning about 7.30 to, to meet with these guys, and, and the other guy was already there, and he was, I could tell he had his Bible open, and he was praying, and I was like, man, you got here early, and he looked at me, his name was Scotty, and he said, man, I've been up all night, and you know what? I smiled. You know why? Because it was the first time I ever realized, like, somebody else in here was up all night besides me, and it was awesome, and I was, I was, I kind of didn't want to smile out loud because I was like, you know, sorry you didn't sleep. But I was super excited somebody else felt the weight. And I'm just telling you, deacons aren't going to feel the weight like you do, Pastor. They're going to feel weight, and they need to feel weight, but it's a different kind of weight. It's a different kind of weight when you raise up other pastors to start to feel the weight you feel. And it's a beautiful thing. And you realize, like, man, I was not called to feel this weight alone. That's a, that's a lie. You're not called to fill that weight alone. Even when you're the only pastor, like, share it. Share it with other people that can pray with you, other, other pastors, wife, other people that can encourage. When we plant churches, we don't let a guy go out and plant a church as a pastor by himself. We have an elder, outside elder team that helps that guy, like, make decisions and pray and carry weight with him. And we do that on purpose so that guy doesn't feel like he's alone. Um, don't be alone in this. Application for pouring into existing elders don't do this alone. After you've raised up some, some elders, let those elders help you pour into the other elders. Man, don't, don't feel like I have to like do all the training with my small group leaders and then I have to do all the training with the deacons and I have to do all the training with the elders. I mean, get some of those other elders to start pouring in and leading with you so you're not doing it all alone. You'll see this. There's a lot, a lot of stuff on here if you grow it out. Grow together. Find ways to grow together. Don't just do business together as pastors. The biggest downfall of every pastor team I've ever been a part of is all we did was business together. The biggest upside of every pastor team I've ever been together that was really good is we prayed together a lot. We played together a lot. 
We prayed and we played and we grew. I wish there was another P I could have there for you. Somebody will think of one. But we played a lot. We prayed a lot. Man, we grew together, which means we were calling each other out on sin and we were, we were challenging one another and we were encouraging one another. And it wasn't just all on me. There was, there was multiple guys stirring that, stirring that pot. Last thing is, is just figure out when you're going to meet and what you're going to do when you're meeting. Um, I, I've learned this from the guy that I run with right now who's the lead guy where I am now. Um, we spend way more time praying together than I ever did as a pastor with, at the church I was at previously, and that's a good thing. Sometimes when we're praying, I'm thinking, man, Mark, we need to talk about this. And we're praying way too long. And you know what? I never walk out of there thinking we pray too much. While we're praying, sometimes I'm thinking that. I'm sinning while we're praying, thinking, we need to stop praying. How stupid is that? But when business is the first thing on your mind, you're going to say things like that. Like, pray. Pray and pray more. Then do business. Pray, 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 disciple one another, encourage one another. Then do business. But figure out what you're going to do in those times and make it more about prayer and more about discipleship than it is about doing business. You're going to have to set aside times to do business. You will. But if that's all you're doing when you get together, man, your elders aren't going to be growing much. You're not going to be growing much. And you're not going to be reproducing in the life of your community what you want being reproduced in your small groups and your discipleship groups. We're going to get a chance to talk about this a little bit, I think. Here's, here's the big takeaway I want you to get from this. Just going through this, you realize there's a lot. a lot. A lot of people to be shepherded, a lot of people to be loved, a lot of people to be discipled. Start small, aim small, miss small. Start with a few and, and build from there. Start with a few that you're going to disciple and let that reproduce from there. And realize this, this is a long slog. I'm talking years. I've been at the place where I'm at now for four years, doing what I've been doing for four years, and we're just now starting to see fruit four years into what I've been doing. And I had a lot of low-hanging fruit, too. And even from a lot of low-hanging fruit, we're just now starting to see fruit. Four years later. So be patient. Be patient. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for these guys. Thank you for the heart they have to see the gospel fanned. God, thank you that you do the work, but God, you called us to be co-laborers somehow in the middle of your vineyard with you. And so, God, we ask in the name of Jesus, that you would make us good servants. Sons of the high king, but good servants. God, teach us how to be disciple makers that make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. God, forgive us for just wanting to fill slots. Make us people that make disciples. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.